0: Women in this city are actively organizing. They're building on their local networks, becoming more strategic and thinking on a national level. White women and black women are coming together, joining forces towards a common goal, but it's not an easy collaboration. In fact, it's not a collaboration at all. White women assume that they have the right to lead and that black women will be happy to follow. But in this moment, The old ideas about whose voices matter in this country are up for debate. And Black women refuse to be silent. This is Philadelphia in the 1870s, when women are organizing in advance of the centennial of 1876, when the country will celebrate 100 years since the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and when educator and activist Carolyn LeCount gets involved. Things get interesting. LeCount isn't going to be told who and what she is, or where she belongs. Not by anyone. Welcome to Found in Philadelphia, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Philadelphia's past so that we can better understand the present. Because our history matters. I'm your host, Lori Ament. With each episode, I hope that you'll learn something new, see things a little differently, and be inspired to go discover some of this history for yourself right here in the city of brotherly love. The following is a special bonus episode about educator and activist Carolyn LeCount. Episodes three and four told the story of LeCount during and after the crisis of the Civil War and the triumphs and tragedies that followed. Episodes five and six focused on the development of public education in Philadelphia and LeCount's role in building good schools for the Black community. This bonus episode highlights a revealing but little-known story in LeCount's life that I didn't want to leave out. It should help us get to know LaCount better, in all her complexities. And before I forget, two quick reminders. First, make sure you check out the episode companion blog at foundinphiladelphia.com. I put lots of extra information and images on the website for each episode. You're not going to want to miss out on the companion blog for this episode, trust me. Second thing, I'd really like to hear your feedback about the podcast in a short online survey. I'll put a link to it in the podcast notes. Thank you for being a part of Found in Philadelphia. For those of you who haven't been a part of this journey through the life of Carolyn LeCount, let's get you up to speed. Carolyn LeCount was born in Philadelphia in 1846, when slavery was the law of the land. She was born into a free Black activist family who believed strongly in giving their children the best education available. Caroline and her two siblings all graduated from the prestigious Institute for Colored Youth. After the Civil War, LeCount was part of an elite circle of well-educated, politically active African Americans in Philadelphia. LeCount played a star part in their efforts to demand streetcar integration in Philadelphia. She was particularly close with Octavius Valentine Caddo, who would become her fiancé. But Caddo was killed in Election Day violence in 1871, before they had a chance to get married. LeCount went on to have a successful career as an educator in Philadelphia. She became principal of the public Ohio Street School at the age of only 21. LeCount later persuaded the school district to build her a new school, the first ever built for Black students with an all Black teaching staff. And it was named the O.V. Caddo School in honor of her murdered fiance. Throughout her nearly 50 year career, LeCount was a tireless advocate for Black educators and for Black educational excellence in public schools. This story takes place in 1873, when LeCount was 27. She was already well-known within the Black community for all of her achievements and for her tragic losses. At this point in her life, Cato had been dead two years, and his killer was still on the run. But as we'll see, instead of being paralyzed by this injustice. It worked like a flame that fueled her already fiery character. The event I want to tell you about is centered on public fundraising by women in advance of Philadelphia hosting the International 1876 Centennial Exhibition. Philadelphia was going to show the world that America was united after its civil war and was a force to be reckoned with. The centennial was planned as a huge international extravaganza equivalent, maybe, to Philadelphia hosting the Olympics today. Everything about the Centennial was going to be big. It would be hosted on over 285 acres of sprawling fairgrounds then Fairmount Park, equipped with its own railway and the world's first monorail. Celebrations would last six months. 37 nations and over 30,000 businesses would participate. And nearly 10 million people would visit the Centennial grounds. The Centennial was going to be a blockbuster. And it was going to be expensive. But there was a great deal of civic pride and patriotic zeal for hosting this international event. And the Women's Centennial Executive Committee was going to do their part to help pay for it. The committee was made up of elite white women, the mothers, daughters, and wives of Philadelphia's leading citizens. Their job was to canvass the city's 28 wards to request donations for the centennial and raise 10% of the state of Pennsylvania's contributions for the event. This was not going to be easy, because during these same years, the nation was also suffering from a financial panic and an international depression that crippled the American economy for nearly a decade. These women were going to need all the help they could get. But there's a problem for these women. Historian Chris Hayashita Knight at the University of California, Chico, helps explain what was going on.
1: They begin to find that white women walking through neighborhoods are more and more often coming across Black households. At this time in the 1870s, there's, there's really not the same sort of Black neighborhood that you might imagine in other cities or later in the 20th century. Black households are really spread widely across the whole city and so when white women are knocking on doors they're coming across black families and it puts them in this situation where instead of seeing black women as laundry workers or cooks or nannies they're seeing them in their own home with their own children and uh, just creates this dynamic that is uncomfortable for these upper-class white women uh, particularly if there are black men at home
0: So the Women's Executive Committee decided to reach out to the Black community to help them raise funds in these awkward situations. Specifically, this outreach task fell to Mary Rose Smith, who was the committee's correspondence secretary and the daughter of a U.S. Supreme Court judge. Smith was publicly known under her husband's name as Mrs. Aubrey H. Smith. Aubrey Smith was a wealthy lawyer who has no place in this story. Mary Rose Smith was also the former president of the Women's Freedmen's Relief Association, which raised money to help formerly enslaved women and children in the South. Smith raised money to provide basics like clothing, farming tools, and of course, education. It's likely that Smith's charitable work was one of the reasons she was selected to interface with the Black community. So Smith reached out to one of the leaders of that community, Dr. Rebecca Cole, She asked Cole to help the committee to identify a group of Black women who would be willing to help with fundraising. If you listened to the earlier episodes, you may remember that Dr. Rebecca Cole was a former classmate of Carolyn LeCount. Cole and LeCount must have known each other fairly well. They were the only two women to graduate from the Institute for Colored Youth in 1863. And during the Civil War, LeCount formed the Ladies' Union Association, along with two of Rebecca Cole's sisters. A decade later, at the time of this story, Dr. Cole was recognized as a leader in healthcare within the Black community. She was, like so many other women in LeCount's network, a trailblazer. After graduating from the Institute, both Cole and LeCount attended what was then called the Female Medical College of Philadelphia. LeCount would enter studies early in order to go work as one of Philadelphia's first certified Black public school teachers but Cole graduated from the medical college in 1867, making her the second African-American woman ever to do so. Dr. Cole dedicated her career to bringing healthcare to the black community. She had first worked in the tenement slums of New York City, visiting families in their homes. Dr. Cole then briefly set up a medical practice in Columbia, South Carolina, before taking up a position in Washington, D.C., as the superintendent of the Home for Destitute Colored Women and Children. Here's Hayashita Knight again.
1: Anyway, she has the conventional medical education, but she brings to it, I think, this attitude that, that we would nowadays recognize as community health. It's about education and hygiene. And it's about, really, in many ways, empowering poor Black mothers to recognize that they have the ability to care for their children's health without going to some professional white doctor someplace. In
0: 1873, Dr. Cole had recently returned to Philadelphia to set up a medical practice to serve the Black community here. You can imagine the pride that that community had in welcoming home this prodigal daughter of Philadelphia. So, when Mary Rose Smith of the Centennial Committee went looking for a leader among the Black women of the city, it's not surprising that she would contact Dr. Cole. It's clear from later events that Dr. Cole felt that taking part in the Centennial Committee's fundraising efforts was important for the African American community. So, Dr. Cole reached out to her network to help with the Centennial Committee's efforts. She selected church leaders, dressmakers, and of course, teachers. That's how Dr. Cole's classmate, Carolyn LeCount, comes into the story. LeCount was asked to be a part of this fundraising effort. And on April 4th, 1873, Dr. Cole and the other chosen representatives attended a meeting at the Centennial Committee headquarters. There, the Black women were given blank subscription books and promotional materials for the Centennial. And then they were instructed by Mary Rose Smith in how they were to undertake their fundraising effort. And that's where things started to go wrong. Smith informed the Black women that they would form the, quote, Colored Women's Centennial Committee, and would be working outside of their own neighborhoods under the supervision of white women. They would only be allowed to knock on the doors of Black families. Essentially, the Black women were being asked to tag along with the white women and be on hand in case the fundraiser reached the home of a Black family, at which point the Black woman would have to take over. The Black women weren't being offered equal roles. Instead, they were to be treated more like servants, who would have to tramp all around the city and then hang around and wait to be called for to save the white women from what they considered an unpleasant task. According to Carolyn LeCount, the black women were too shocked and too well-educated to speak out at the meeting. Though I'd like to point out that LeCount didn't actually attend this meeting. She was only speaking about what she heard later. Things might've gone differently if she had been there. After the meeting with Smith, the women needed time to talk and to decide on what to do next. They knew the importance of showing a united front to the white community. That evening, the women gathered at Dr. Cole's home to vent and to strategize. They had just been treated like dirt by Mary Rose Smith, and they weren't going to put up with it. But at the same time, they didn't want to appear unpatriotic or unwilling to work in service of the centennial. So at the meeting, in true 19th century style, Dr. Cole and the other women drafted a set of resolutions stating their case. Here they are in summary. Resolution number one. To be absolutely clear, the women were dissatisfied with the arrangements for their participation and fundraising. Resolution number two. The women thought the arrangements were unjust and restrictive. Resolution number three. Asking them to work outside of their neighborhoods was a barrier. Full stop. Resolution number four, the women had come to the meeting in a spirit of cooperation and had not expected to be treated as a separate colored committee. And for this last one, I want us all to lean in and listen closely, because we still really need to hear this one today. Resolution number five, the black women resolved that the executive committee should have asked them to have a seat at the table at the beginning when these decisions were being made in order to quote, represent our wants in common with American women. These women wanted to be treated like equal partners, not be dictated to like second-class citizens. So they deputized Dr. Cole to send their resolutions to Mary Rose Smith and the Women's Executive Committee. Hayashita Knight helps put their resolutions into context.
1: And this is, so this is 1873, we're just a couple of years out from the Civil War where hundreds of thousands of Black men have fought on behalf of the Union to uh, defend the idea of the federal government and the Constitution. So these uh, these women who supported and treated these men in Black hospitals in Philadelphia, cared for orphans and widows in the wake of the war, are are being asked to stand a few feet behind the white subscription gatherers as they travel through town on behalf of America. And they, they're they happy to serve, they communicate this, and, and they would love the opportunity to celebrate the United States and what it means and the, the birth of freedom in 1776, but they're not gonna do it in terms that are not reflective of what just happened in the United States. I mean, as I read it, it's. The work of framing their national identity. Are we second-class citizens or are we Americans just as much as you are, you white women?
0: And we learn how Mary Rose Smith reacted to the Black women's resolutions and their demands to be treated like equal citizens from later accounts by Carolyn LeCount and Dr. Rebecca Cole. And it wasn't pretty. After delivering their resolutions, LeCount reported that the Black women held a follow-up meeting at Dr. Cole's home. And Smith attended this meeting as a representative of the Centennial Committee. At the meeting at Dr. Cole's home, Smith let her displeasure be known. Smith told the Black women that they needed to hand over their subscription books because they would not be accepted under any other conditions than to work as a separate committee and to solicit subscriptions solely from Black people. According to LeCount, Smith told them that they, quote, had no right to work among white people and that they were solicited as a matter of courtesy, not because they had any right to participate in the centennial. Dr. Cole remembered Smith stating that the centennial celebration was not a concern for black people anyway. It was only for white people. But then Smith really crossed the line, as LeCount recalled. Smith spoke of, quote, remanding the women back to Africa if they were not satisfied with the laws of the land. This is one of the few times that we have records of LeCount's actual words. So actor Siobhan Smith has generously offered her talents to bring those words to life. In LeCount's retelling, she put a special bitter emphasis on the word remand. When asked to elaborate, LeCount stated that this word, quote,
2: is fraught with the most painful association It is a term used when the dealers in the bodies and souls of men succeeded in getting their prey and consigning them to interminable bondage. It was the legal term that belonged to the fugitive slave law days, and I should have thought that this lady would have hesitated to use such a word before 11 American women whose only crime in her eyes was that their complexions was less fair than hers. From historic associations, the word should have been unpleasant to her as painful to us.
0: Historian Hayashida Knight helps us understand where Smith is coming from.
1: She has a lot invested in the education movement, freedmen schools, and sending teachers south after the war to educate former slaves. And... The way she thinks of it is, she's focused primarily on her own generosity. This is about herself as a benevolent person, and she's used to being thanked a lot by Black people.
0: It's clear that Smith had never had to deal with Black women who demanded to be treated as equals, and who did not want or need her charity. In her rage, Smith's mask of generosity slipped right off, and her inner racist was exposed. And as far as Carolyn LeCount was concerned, a bridge had been burned. The reprehensible things that Smith said at this meeting were initially kept quiet, but it wasn't going to stay that way. In mid-April, the white women of the executive committee were organizing a major centennial fundraising event at the Academy of Music and publicly touting their new, quote, colored committee to the press. In turn, the Black women felt that they needed to set the record straight. They wanted to publicly explain that they were no longer taking part in the centennial fundraising because of the unequal treatment they had received. This was an important way of protecting themselves and their community from any backlash. So the Black women published an open letter to the press, signed by 33 women, including both Dr. Cole and LeCount. Their letter was a protest against American prejudice, which they stated, quote, ought to have outlived itself in this 100th anniversary. This unfavorable publicity forced the head of the Women's Executive Committee, Elizabeth Gillespie, a descendant of Benjamin Franklin, to step in. Gillespie met with Dr. Cole and a colleague on May 10th. In this meeting, Gillespie was able to argue that the committee really had the best intentions towards the Black women, and that Smith's racist language did not represent the views of the rest of the committee. Most importantly, Gillespie conceded to the Black women's request for an integrated approach to fundraising. They would canvass as committee members in their own right and in their own neighborhoods. According to reports sent to the newspapers under the heading Amicable Adjustment, the women parted with mutual goodwill. The Colored Women's Centennial Committee was disbanded and given an honorable discharge. Going forward, they would all be centennial women. But this wasn't good enough for LeCount. LeCount wanted the public to understand exactly what happened, and she wanted nothing to do with this amicable adjustment. So LeCount and 10 other women joined forces to drag this dispute into the limelight. It's clear that LeCount was the leader of this faction, because at least three of the 10 women were teachers or married to teachers at LeCount's school. And it was LeCount who gave an interview to the Sunday Times newspaper about a week after news of the amicable adjustment was noted in the newspaper. Her group then also signed a statement that was sent to the Philadelphia Inquirer with LeCount's name given top billing. And by choosing the Sunday Times and the Inquirer, LeCount was reaching out to a primarily white audience to chastise the executive committee for their actions. They weren't going to get off that easily. LeCount's interview with the Sunday Times about the disagreement took place in May 1873. LeCount is described as being, quote, an exceedingly intelligent and affable young lady, and also as a handsome young lady who felt the indignity under which she was placed. But we need to remember that LeCount was very comfortable taking center stage. LeCount was in fact celebrated for her spirited dramatic readings. She regularly appeared in public throughout the Philadelphia region as a reader, or what was sometimes called an elocutionist. Dramatic reading of popular poems was considered a highly cultured and respectable way for women to perform on stage. So in this interview, the reporter butters up LeCount by telling her that as, quote, Principal of the Ohio Street Public School, 7th Section, I therefore regard you as one of our representative women, and your opinion will be highly esteemed. We can imagine that LeCount was ready to use all of her dramatic talents to bring her community some justice. LeCount stated that her group remained angry at Smith for her racist language and for assuming they would work as a distinct and separate colored committee and they refused to give the executive committee a pass for this behavior. Smith was their great representative after all. Whatever Smith did was done in their name. But LeCount's group also resented Dr. Cole for speaking for them and agreeing to this compromise with the executive committee on their behalf. And LeCount went a step further and accused Dr. Cole of knowing the degrading terms they would be asked to work under from the very beginning. LeCount's group had no part in this amicable adjustment and were in no way satisfied. But LeCount also emphasized that her group of women remained staunch patriots. LeCount highlighted their quote,
2: Unwavering devotion to the country and our readiness to participate on equal conditions in all pertaining to her greatness and glory.
0: And it was this sense of patriotism that made this fight so important to LeCount. She loved the country too much to accept anything but equal treatment for her citizens because that was the law as stated in the Reconstruction Amendments to the Constitution. In her interview with the Sunday Times, LeCount emphasized that Mary Rose Smith must not know the laws of the land because, quote,
2: The great feature of our laws is that they make no distinction by reason of color. To produce so grand a result has cost our nation thousands of lives and millions of money. And we love to scorn this attempt to repudiate the sacrifices and sufferings of true Americans. In them, we participated, not to the exclusion of Mrs. Smith and her women of America, but to the common inheritance of all.
0: Smith's women of America were clearly white, while LeCount's definition included all women. This interview gives us some insight into LeCount's personality. Hayashita Knight helps break it down.
1: She's she's just unapologetic, and I and I think like so many other activists, she has this charisma, she has this this, this eloquent way of describing her point of view. She's she's highly educated and she she's conscious of her representation in public. She's she welcomes scrutiny. She doesn't seem to care. If people think poorly of her or not. She's standing up for what she believes. So she I think she relishes the public attention on this. And this is what's so interesting and complicated about Carolyn McCown. I, I think it's it would be unfair to say that it's all that any of this is all about ego for her. She cares deeply about these issues. And this is an opportunity to remind white people that black people are as American as they are.
0: But this shows that LeCount was also uncompromising when dealing with her closest allies. Her interview with the Sunday Times took direct aim at Dr. Rebecca Cole. LeCount questioned Cole's leadership and her integrity in a very public way. LeCount felt that Cole's willingness to accept the committee's apologies made her somehow complicit with its racism. And LeCount wanted to be clear that she and her allies were having none of it. LeCount's interview with the Sunday Times was later republished and given top billing in the New National Era and Citizen. This was Frederick Douglass's national newspaper for African Americans, which was run by his sons. LeCount's words followed the somewhat gleeful title of, quote, Color Prejudice, the difficulty between the white and colored ladies of the Philadelphia Centennial Committee, an intelligent colored lady interviewed by a Times reporter, her version of the affair, what she thinks of the imperious Mrs. Aubrey H. Smith. After this headline, Dr. Cole felt the need to defend herself publicly to the Black community. So a week or so after LeCount's interview and open letter, Dr. Cole sent a letter of her own to the new national era and citizen to tell her side of the story. Cole emphasized that she did not know that the Black women were to be discriminated against and treated as a separate committee. She also placed the blame for their initial racist treatment on an individual of the executive committee. Naming no names, but everyone knew it was that bad apple Mary Rose Smith, also known as the imperious Mrs. Aubrey H. Smith. But Cole didn't blame the committee itself. For the record, Cole noted that the executive committee had rectified all of their errors and had been working under a misunderstanding that the Black women actually wanted to be held apart. Cole also stated that her group of women representatives had decided unanimously to acquit the executive committee of any dishonorable intentions. And in order to emphasize her leadership role, Cole signed this public letter simply as chairman. Hayashita Knight tells us how Cole's background might've shaped her actions.
1: Cole has probably spent a lot more time around white people than Caroline McCount has. She has no doubt had countless experiences of explicit and implicit racism and being managed by white people who are less qualified than she is. And, and so she approaches this with an attitude of like, well, we can spend our energy fighting over words and titles and procedures, or we can focus on what matters.
0: Cole had made her way in the white-dominated world of the medical profession. She would never have gotten ahead without compromising. In contrast, LeCount was able to carve out an all-Black educational environment within the public school system of Philadelphia. She'd never had to work in the kind of isolation that Dr. Cole did. But LeCount and her splinter group were unwilling to pretend to accept that Smith alone was the problem with the Centennial Committee. Hayashita Knight sees these two women Dr. Colin LeCount engaged in a classic debate within the Black community.
1: Do we, do we assume the best of white people and kind of go easy on them when they're behaving in a racist way in order to, to get to the end that we're pursuing? Or do we stand firm and say that the ideas themselves matter, that words matter? So LeCount is, is very firmly on the side that, that words matter.
0: Dr. Cole clearly believed that she could be most effective by smoothing over the rough patches and working alongside the established Centennial Committee. She felt she could create change from within the system. While LeCount thought that they lost everything by being accommodating, LeCount would rather stand outside and fight on her own terms. It's easy to find fault with how Cole or how LeCount responded to the Centennial debacle. We might think that Dr. Cole was too accommodating and allowed the white women to get off too easily. Though we have to remember that Cole did protest at first and didn't come to an amicable adjustment until they could fundraise on their own terms in their own neighborhoods. On the other hand, we might dismiss LeCount as an uncompromising table flipper, ready to blow up the place and steal center stage. Though again, I believe that LeCount was fighting to expose racism and to demand equal treatment using her unique combination of intelligence, charm, and her position in society. But let's not forget the real culprit here. It was the racist attitudes of the White Women's Executive Committee. They gave the Black women a difficult choice by inviting them to participate in a grand civic event to showcase Philadelphia to the world at the centennial, but then telling these women exactly what they could and could not do, and then insulting them when they dared disagree. That Black women had to decide how best to respond to this racist and unjust treatment. Should they compromise and accept lies in order to be part of this once-in-a-lifetime event? Or should they stand their ground, call out the injustice, and not participate at all? Wasn't much of a choice. And what happened between these former classmates, Carolyn LeCount and Dr. Rebecca Cole, We don't really know how the Centennial fallout impacted these women in the long run. We do know that Philadelphia's Black community, like LeCount, remained skeptical of the entire Centennial enterprise. In fact, leaders in the community held a rally in September 1873 to try to gather support for participating in the Centennial. It's hard to believe that LeCount's public rebuke of the Centennial Committee didn't sway people's opinions. We know that the whole affair was well-known and hotly debated in Philly. Carolyn LeCount was a highly respected member of the community, and people listened to her. And further, LeCount would be invited to perform at the annual meeting of the Pennsylvania Equal Rights League, following the publicity over the Centennial dispute. She received billing as the American lady who, quote, so pluckily castigated the lady managers of the Centennial for their unpatriotic, colorphobic prejudices. At the meeting, LeCount performed a dramatic reading of two patriotic Civil War poems from her standard repertoire. Sheridan's Ride, and Barbara Fritchie. These were some of the popular favorites that she recited at many fundraising events for the Black community, many of them Union War veterans. The poems were read with, quote, faultless elocution, graceful poses, and heart-melting pathos, and were met with wild ovations of applause. McCown could still bring down the house. And we know that Dr. Rebecca Cole continued her remarkable career fighting for public health. Later in the century, she was debating with people like W.E.B. Du Bois to point out how racism in housing and healthcare contributed to poor health outcomes in the black community. And Dr. Cole later helped found the National Association of Colored Women, along with national figures such as Ida B. Wells and Harriet Tubman. But Dr. Cole really deserves her own podcast series, don't you think? And we're already gearing up to celebrate 250 years since the signing of the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia in 2026. You can learn more about that effort at philadelphia250.us. If we want to make this a truly inclusive celebration, we'll need to take a long, hard look at the historical baggage we're bringing and be prepared to listen, have some hard conversations, and learn from our past mistakes. Thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of the Found in Philadelphia podcast. This podcast was made possible in part through a grant from the Athenaeum of Philadelphia. I'd like to thank Chris Hayashita Knight, historian at the University of California, Chico, for generously sharing both his time and his research on Carolyn LeCount. I'm also hugely grateful for the contributions of Siobhan Smith, actor, director, and founder of the Grounded Theater Company. Smith is currently working on a play about Carolyn LeCount But you can enjoy Smith's work right now through the virtual Tea with Frederick Douglass event online. Smith wrote and directed the piece, which is part of the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion's Black History Experience in Germantown. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I also need to recognize the ongoing support of Cyril Tayandier, an associate teaching professor and audio engineer at Drexel University and head of Mad Dragon Recording Studios.